Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Remain standing and take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, as we continue our study in the book of James. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6, so James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, if you will follow along as I read our text, beginning now in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. May the Lord richly bless this reading of his word and bless our time together in it. You may be seated. It seems kind of dark up here. Did we turn off some lights that we don't normally turn off? The older I get, the more light I need to see. (laughs) Well, as you know, the point that James has been making all through his epistle is that true saving faith in our hearts will be evident by the fruit of our lives. In other words, it will manifest in good works. Because what we do reveals who we are. Thank you. We've also learned that a true saving faith is manifested in our lives by our speech. That what we say also reveals who we are. Because ultimately our words come from our hearts. And so the tongue is the revealer of the heart. And last week in verses 13 to 18 of chapter 3, James showed that just as genuine faith manifests itself in good works and in the words that come come from our mouths... Genuine faith also manifests itself by the wisdom we possess and practice. And the kind of wisdom we possess will be revealed by the kind of life we live. In verse 13, James said that true wisdom is demonstrated not by our words alone, but rather by our behavior. He said that true wisdom is demonstrated by good conduct, that is, Godly living, a morally excellent lifestyle full of good works done in the meekness that characterizes wisdom. 
And then in verses 14 to 18, it contr- he contrasted false wisdom, worldly wisdom, with true godly wisdom. First, in verses 14 to 16, he dealt with worldly wisdom. And he said the evidences of false wisdom in one's life are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the heart, and then arrogance and boasting. And then in verse 15, James made clear that this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But rather, this kind of wisdom, this worldly wisdom, is earthly, it is unspiritual, it is demonic. And then in verse 16, James tells of its destructive consequences. Jealousy and selfish ambition produce certain inevitable results, and he named two of them. He said, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And so instead of producing harmony, intimacy, love, unity, and fellowship, worldly wisdom brings disorder, what the Bible calls discord among the brothers, chaos, confusion, disharmony, antagonism, and pettiness. And secondly, it produces every vile practice, which is a broad term that covers a multitude of bad results. In fact, there is almost literally no limit to the sins that have followed jealousy and selfish ambition. And remember, we're talking about in the church. And then in verses 17 and 18, James turned to the wisdom that is spiritual and godly. The kind of wisdom every one of us should be constantly praying for and seeking to manifest in our daily living. This wisdom that comes from God, the wisdom of heaven, is characterized by both internal and external fruits, and James described it in seven ways. He said it's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And in verse 18, he tells us the results of godly wisdom in one's life. He says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So his point was simple. You reap what you sow. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Whereas earthly wisdom produces conflict, chaos, and animosity, godly wisdom will manifest itself in one's life by righteousness or godly, selfless, and and peaceful living. In short, godly wisdom is behavioral, not intellectual, and it's seen in the skill of living righteously. And now after addressing the two types of wisdom in verses 13 to 18 of chapter 3, we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, James shows us the antithesis of a life lived in accordance with heavenly wisdom. Beginning in chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5, verse 6, James deals with the havoc caused when worldly wisdom rather than heavenly wisdom dominates the life of believers. This worldly wisdom manifests itself in at least three ways. In verses 1 to 10, in the lust for pleasure. In verses 11 to 12, in harsh criticism of fellow believers. And in chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 6, it manifests itself in arrogant disregard of God in a number of ways. So let's begin now by looking at verses 1 to 10 and worldly wisdom's lust for pleasure. Now let me just say this at the outset. There are some commentators who treat this as if James has somehow changed the audience that he's speaking to. 
You know, they, they would have us to believe that James is now not speaking to believers, but rather he's speaking to unbelievers. And if I wanted to slant it that way, I could teach it that way. But the fact of the matter is, there is no evidence in the text that James has changed who he's speaking to. Not at all. It's just that some people don't want to believe that Christians can be this sinful. But we know from Scripture throughout the New Testament that they certainly can. And so James is still speaking to believers. And the first thing we see in verse 1 and verses, verses 1 and 2a is that the worldly mind, you know, worldly wisdom, worldliness manifests itself in the lust for pleasure, which James will tell us is the cause of quarrels and fights. Look at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? Remember the churches James was writing to were made up of predominantly Jewish Christians who were experiencing severe trials and suffering that included rejection, persecution, poverty, adversity, and affliction from without. But even more troubling was the conflict within those churches. Some of those James was writing to were not responding properly in the trials they were called on to endure, and they were blaming God for their difficulties and their sin. Some were showing partiality, favoritism to the rich and neglecting the poor members of the church. They were lacking in sacrificial love and compassion in meeting the needs of others. There were would-be teachers rushing into the ministry for the wrong reasons and motives. They, they wanted the position and the recognition and the supposed perks. I mean, others were not keeping a tight rein on their tongues. They praised God in church and then verbally cursed their fellow believers on the street. And it was having a destructive impact on the lives of others and in the life of the churches. There were others whose hearts were full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And this led to disorder and to every vile or evil practice. You see, James thought that believers could be guilty of every vile or evil practice. Some of the Jewish Christians were former zealots or violent political activists. And because of this, many prominent scholars believe that some may have actually become violent in the churches. So the churches James was writing to were full of strife and conflict within. And there is ample evidence of that kind of behavior in the early church. Everybody says, man, let's get back to the purity of the early church. Really? Because there is ample evidence of, of this kind of behavior we've been talking about in the early church. I mean, that wonderful Philippian church had two women who couldn't get along. And the, con the, the conflict was so severe that Paul singled them out by name in his letter. And he wrote, I plead with Yodia and Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. And Paul began the practical section of Ephesians with an appeal to unity, peace, and love between the members. The Galatian believers, were told, were biting and devouring one another. I mean, Paul told the church at Corinth, we read it this morning, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brother." 
And then later in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he added, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Not only was there severe conflict and and division and, and so forth in the church of Corinth, they were dragging each other to court, suing each other. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. You see, Paul thought those things could be going on in the church by Christians because they were. And sadly, this has been true of churches down through the ages. One commentator wrote, <clears throat> Our individualistic American tradition has been particularly receptive to church strife. Recently, he said, I read of a congregational business meeting that turned into a brawl, which was finally stopped by the local police. Stories like this are such a part of our American folklore that the caricature of a feuding church is found everywhere as a young father learned from his children. Hearing a commotion in his backyard, he looked outside, saw his daughter and several playmates in a heated quarrel, and when he intervened, his daughter called back, Dad, we're just playing church. I mean, we laugh, but that's tragically sad. That's what most people think about the church. And this is what James saw in the churches that he was writing to. I mean, just look at what he says of the relationships of Christians with each other. Look at the words he uses. Quarrels, fights, murder, covet, passions, which means evil passions, sinful lusts. As James said back in chapter 3, verse 10, about the consistency of the tongue, my brothers, these things ought not be so. Because the church is to be united around the truth of God in love for God and love for one another. The church is to be united in worship and service. Hey, look, we we expect those in the world who have rejected God and His Word and who are devoid of His Spirit to be characterized by quarreling and fighting. But we do not expect to see believers quarreling and fighting in church. But sadly, it goes on. The Christians James was writing to were in an ongoing state of quarreling that exploded into open conflict. Which, of course, is the result of following the wisdom of the world, which is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. As James said, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So this is the problem James begins to address in verse 1. And he begins with a rhetorical question. Look back at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And among you indicates among the members of the church. So he's saying, where do do the conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? In other words, what's causing the quarrels and fights in the church? And the Greek word translated quarrels is the word from which we get our English word polemics. It's a general word for fights or warfare. The word for fight is a more narrow term for skirmishes, individual attacks. In in terms of physical warfare, it speaks of serious conflict, either physical or non-physical, but clearly intensive and bitter. 
And it means to clash severely, to struggle, to fight. And so the first term would refer to the war. The second refers to a specific fight or battle. And both terms are used here metaphorically of violent personal relationships which can result in physical conflict, even in murder. Now these quarrels and fights could be a wide variety of things. Verbal disputes, arguments over theology, competing with others for recognition, jockeying for position and authority, accusing others of treating you wrongly or unjustly. I mean, this would also include bitterness toward others and lingering unforgiveness in your heart. And it's very possible that physical fights on occasion broke out as tempers flared and things spun out of control. But it's important for us to understand that these quarrels and fights are not the primary problem. These things are definitely a big problem. I mean, they are grievous sins, to be sure. But the real problem is more than that. I mean, these things are the symptoms of a much deeper and more pressing problem. And so the important thing for us to understand is the root cause of it all. And James is going to identify the fundamental cause. And so he asks, what is the source of wars and fights among you? And of course, if we were asked this question, we would be tempted to say, well, Satan, you know, the world. False believers, false teachers who crept in secretly to the church. Or uh, we'd say, well, so-and-so did such-and-such. You know, in other words, we usually see quarrels and fights as the fault of someone or something else. And there may be times when a conflict is solely the fault of another person. But that happens far, far less than we uh, seem to think. I mean, we always feel like the victim. And we are often very happy to tell others this thing or this very thing while we are at the same time recruiting their support for the fight. But notice what James does not say. He does not say that you quarrel and fight and engage in bitter conflict because Satan is at war within you. Neither does he say that the cause of our sinning is the world and its corrupt ways. And nowhere does he suggest that the cause of our sin is other people's circumstances, your spouse, your parents, or the dysfunctional family you were raised in. The Spirit of God, speaking through James, diagnoses the problem differently. The blame lies much closer to home. Notice James answers his own question with another question. Look back at verse 1. He says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And this is a rhetorical question and expects a yes. In other words, yes, James, you're correct. So James answers his own question before his readers can make excuses, rationalize, or justify their sin. And of course, we never do that. And what is his diagnosis? What is the diagnosis of the Holy Spirit? Well, that the strife going on externally between saints is a manifestation of the war going on internally in our own hearts. 
I mean, James is simply validating what Jesus, his half-brother, had taught, declaring what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. I mean, remember what James said back in chapter 1, verse 14, about the source of temptation? He said, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. The source of temptation lies within us. We're tempted by our own desire. In other words, our own lusts. I mean, as James said in chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, disorder and every evil thing result from the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our own hearts. So James places the responsibility squarely at our doorstep. He says the cause of the quarrels and fights among us, wherever they are, the cause of the conflict in the church, and really the cause of all our sinning is our own sinful passions or desires that are at war within our hearts. And the word passions can also be translated lust, pleasures, desires, cravings. The word passions is the Greek word from which we get our English word hedonist and hedonism, which is the belief that pleasure is the main goal in life. And how many Christians live like that today? Its primary sense here is pleasures. But James uses the term in its negative sense which speaks of sensual, fleshly desires, insatiable desires for personal pleasure and gratification without regard to restraint or discipline. You know, the desire to fulfill these pleasures come, of course, from selfishness, which is opposed to God and the Word of God. I mean, this describes a mindset and lifestyle that views pleasure, self-gratification as the main goal in life. I mean, pleasure is what motivates them in life. It's what they live for. Now, don't think for one moment that James is suggesting that pleasure uh, itself is wrong or sinful. It is not. I mean, we can find pleasure in a thousand different things without falling into sin. But even good things can become sinful things when the personal desire to fulfill those passions that promise satisfaction and enjoyment without regard for God or others becomes our focus. The problem is when we become pleasure-dominated or pleasure-oriented, controlled by a driving desire for fulfilling our lustful desires. I mean, the problem is when the fulfilling of those desires displaces God and the things of God from being the focus of our lives. The Greek word translated here as war means to engage in war or battle as a soldier. It means to battle, to fight. So James is telling us there is a constant battle that goes on in the life of a believer between the spirit and the flesh. I mean, we have conflicting desires. The flesh with its self-centered lust for personal pleasure and gratification battles against the spirit, our new nature with its God-centered focus. And when a Christian gives in to the self-centered desires of the flesh so that pleasure-seeking dominates their life, it will absolutely 
diminish the importance of God, the things of God, and others. It's, it's personal gratification and self-fulfillment at any cost. And then, as one man said, all our desires and passions are like an armed camp within us, ready at a moment's notice to wage war against anyone who stands in the way of some personal gratification on which we have set our hearts. That is so true. And of course, this brings relational conflict with those around us, especially others in the church. What does it cause? James says it causes quarrels and fights. And the strife and trouble in the church for the last 2,000 years has been rooted in the sinful cravings and desires of her people for personal pleasure and enjoyment. And so the question for all of us this morning is this. Are our lives filled with interpersonal conflicts, especially with believers? And if so, it's probably because we subtly and and piously, oh, and people can do it so piously. No, we're subtly and piously putting our passion for personal pleasure above everything else. And you see, the truths that James articulates here are relevant not only to the life or to life in the church, but to life in general, especially in the marriage relationship. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Well, many wives would blame their husbands, and many husbands would blame their wives. However, it's safe to say that the way both of you treat the other is sinful. But the fundamental reason why you quarrel and fight and fail to love one another as you should is deeper than that. The cause of the conflict and chaos, the arguments and angry words, is not because your spouse ignored you or treated you unfairly or took advantage of you or let you down. The reason for the problems in every marriage, family, and all other relationships is the selfish, self-centered, sinful, fleshly passions and desires that are at war within you. And here's what James is saying. All your problems, all your struggles, all your conflicts, whether in your relationship with others or in your battle with temptation in the world, can largely be reduced to one thing. Selfish desires. Our lives are self-centered, not God-centered. The reason why Christians have quarrels and, and fights and conflict is because we have allowed the fulfillment of our fleshly desires, our pleasures to dominate our lives, and woe to anyone who interferes or stands in the way of the personal gratification we have set our hearts on. Because frustrated desires leads to conflict and sometimes even violence. Look what James says in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so what do you do? He says you murder. He says you covet and cannot obtain, so what do you do? You fight and quarrel. I mean, this is the result of choosing pleasure over God. When people choose pleasure over God, they disregard the Word of God and the will of God, and their desire 
And this word desire means intense desire, evil desire or longing for. It means to crave, to lust for something or to engage in an activity which is morally wrong. And so when someone chooses pleasure over God, they disregard the word of God and the will of God and their desire, their lustful desire for self-gratification will drive them to do things they never dreamed that they were capable of doing. First, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. The word murder is startling because it's meant to startle. James wanted to warn us that unbridled, selfish passion knows no limits. It'll do anything to achieve its ends. It can manipulate and justify anything to meet its ends. And of course, murder is the ultimate result of desires not fulfilled. And James had in mind actual murder. But he also had in mind the entire range of sins, hatred, anger, bitterness that lead to it. I mean, you can murder someone with your words. You can murder someone's reputation with your foul mouth. The pictures of someone so driven by their lustful desires that they'll do anything to fulfill them even going so far as to murder. Because James wants us to understand that is how strong unbridled lust is. Again, it is personal gratification and self-fulfillment at any cost. You say, well, that's a little bit extreme. Well, in saying that lustful desires can lead to murder, James had history and the word of God on his side. Because there are at least two Old Testament accounts of people whose selfish desires led them to commit murder. The first is in 2 Samuel 11, the story of David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then what did he do? He had her husband Uriah murdered. The other is in 1 Kings 21, the story of the rich king Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel and the man called Naboth. Naboth was murdered so that Ahab could add Naboth's one little vineyard to all of his other great possessions. And the lesson here is clear. Never underestimate the terrible power of lustful desires. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Then he says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The word covet is the Greek word from which we get our word zeal, zealous, zealot. And it can be used in in either a good sense or a bad sense. In a good sense, it means to burn with zeal, earnest striving, to be fervent, passionate, zealous, such as in your commitment to the Lord. In a bad sense, as it's used here, It means to burn with envy, to be filled with jealousy. It's it's the present tense which describes someone in a continual state of burning or or boiling over. And so it, it describes someone who is burning with envy, jealousy, and anger over not being able to obtain something they want that will bring them the gratification, contentment, and happiness their flesh desires. And because they cannot obtain it, When their selfish desires within are not satisfied in frustration and anger, James says, you fight, you quarrel. And people become so obsessed with a desired pleasure that they don't care 
who they trample or who they hurt to get their goal. Our frustration and anger lead to bitter, divisive, and destructive outbursts. John Calvin said it this way, When a man allows his appetites free reign, he will never come to an end to his lust. Because even if he were given the entire earth, he would long to have new worlds made for him. And that's so true because the flesh is never satisfied. No matter how intensely or ruthlessly we pursue pleasures, nothing, loved ones, absolutely nothing outside of our relationship to Jesus Christ can ever fully satisfy us. What does the Bible say? In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But the pleasure-dominated life can only leave us uh, with the most unsatisfying disappointments. Let me, let me read uh, the words of one who sought pleasure in excess, in the excesses of wealth, prominence, possessions, and sex. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Of course, this is Solomon speaking. And he's talking about the, the vanity of, of self-indulgence. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and, and how to lay, lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so what did he do? I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and, and many concubines. Yet 300 concubines. Many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. All was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. If anybody knew about uh, seeking pleasure in excess, it was Solomon. He had it all. He says it was all vanity. Never brought satisfaction. 
When a Christian gives in to his or her flesh and allows their passion for pleasure and and self-gratification to dominate their lives, they are setting themselves up for failure. Because when he or she is unable to fulfill their sinful desires, passions, lusts, for whatever it is they think will bring them the gratification, contentment, and happiness their flesh desires. In their anger and frustration, they'll fight. They will argue, manipulate, justify, lie, steal, criticize, cut people off, seek revenge, get even, and they will turn their attention to someone else, anything else other than God, to satisfy those raging desires within And fights and quarrels and division and the harm we inflict on one another is because we are selfish, period. Don't try to rationalize your behavior on some other grounds. This is what the Word of God says. Because the underlying problem, once again, in all our relational and marital struggles is not something outside of us. It's not other people. It's not your boss or your spouse or your child or your parents or your neighbor. It's not another person who frustrates your goals or who undermines your plans or who fails to come through when you expect them to. The fundamental underlying problem is inside of us. It's our own passions, our own lustful desires, envy, jealousy, and anger, and all the outward actions they result in. They all manifest one thing, a selfish, self-centered heart. But true wisdom, godly wisdom, the wisdom from above is totally opposite from selfishness. And so we see the havoc caused when worldly wisdom dominates the life of believers. First of all, it manifests itself in the lust for pleasure, which results in quarrels and fights. And then secondly, in the last part of verse 2 and and verse 3, we see that the lust for pleasure results in prayerlessness and unanswered prayer. Notice the last part of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. One reason why these people didn't obtain certain things is that they didn't pray for them. They didn't have them, James says, because they didn't ask for them. And let's let's make sure we understand here uh, what James is saying. He he is not implying that we can ask God for anything and everything we want and he'll just give it. We just simply have to ask. Well, no, nothing could be further from the truth. What we ask God for in prayer must be governed by all the teachings of Scripture about prayer. I mean, this is not a, you know, name it and claim it kind of a deal or a blab it and grab it kind of theology. And the Apostle John helps us balance our perspective on prayer. He said in 1 John 3.22, Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So obedience is a key part of answered prayer. Secondly, in 1 John 5.14, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So you want to have an effective prayer life? John says, John encourages an obedient life and God-centered prayer for things that please God and are according to His will, not for things that fuel your own envious, selfish desires. 
And James says to the people he's writing to and to us this morning, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, why didn't they? Why didn't they ask? Or why wouldn't they ask? Well, apparently they still had enough spiritual sensitivity to realize it was inappropriate to ask God for the things they had set their hearts on. They didn't pray for certain things because they knew perfectly well that they could not do so honestly. Either the things they wanted were wrong or their desire to have them was wrong or the way they intended to use them was wrong. Whatever it may have been, they knew that it was inappropriate to ask God for them. And so they did not. And as one man said, there is a simple but clear principle here. If you cannot pray about it, then you will not profit from it. That principle can be written across the whole of life. If we cannot pray about it, then we cannot profit from it. If we cannot say, Lord, bless me as I do this thing, we ought not to be doing it at all. And so instead of turning to God in prayer, their approach is self-centered and worldly. They attempt to satisfy their lustful desires and passions through their own efforts. And so instead of wrestling with God in prayer, they, they quarreled and fought with men. You do not have because you do not ask. You're not going to God in prayer, James says to these believers, and so you do not have. And secondly, he says that, that some of these pleasure-seeking believers uh, don't express their desires, in, or they do express their desires in prayer, but they don't receive because their motive is all wrong. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You don't have what you think you need because you don't come to God and ask Him for it. And then when you do come and ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, which means bad, evil, or wicked motives. You ask with evil motives so that you can spend it on your own selfish passions and desires. And the word spend means to completely use up or squander and was used by Jesus to describe the prodigal son's wasteful squandering of his inheritance. The word passions here is the same word used in verse 1. It speaks of man's appetite, his sensual, fleshly, insatiable desires for personal pleasure and self-gratification. And it reveals the real concern of the kind of prayer that James says is totally defective. And so James is saying you ask and do not receive because you ask with sinful, wicked motives. You want God to give you things so that you can squander them on your own sensual, fleshly desires for your own personal pleasure and self-gratification. I mean, think about that. He's saying you don't pray for what you need to experience more of God or so that you might be less selfish and more giving or so that you might be a great blessing to others. No, in order to get what you selfishly want and lust for and covet, you turn to God and ask Him to supply it. In other words, you ask God to give you the wrong satisfaction. You simply see God as a, a means to your ends instead of the end itself. When you look to God as the one to give you your desires, however warped they may be, instead of the one who is to be the preeminent desire of your heart. You see what he's saying? These people were using prayer to try to get from God something that they really desired more than God. 
mean, this is stunning. James depicts men and women wanting something or someone they believe will satisfy them. And so what do they do? They come to God not because they see in Him satisfaction, you know, not because He satisfies them, but only to ask Him for the means to get something else instead of Him. And then once we get it, we turn away from God to find our satisfaction in whatever thing He gave us. And this is why James will describe people in the next verse as adulterous. As John Piper said, people who use prayer to try to get from God something they desire more than God are like the wife who asks her husband for money to go visit her lover. It's exactly what it's like. It's exactly what it's like. When worldly wisdom dominates the life of believers, first of all, it manifests itself in the lust for pleasure which results in quarrels and fights. Secondly, it results in prayerlessness and unanswered prayer. And thirdly, in verse 4, we see the lust for pleasure has a devastating impact on our relationship to God. You want to know how God regards his children who live for their own self-centered pleasures? Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is just astounding. Up until now, James has spoken with a heartfelt pastoral affection for his readers. He's referred to them as brothers in in a number of verses, and even dear brothers in in three verses. And he'll refer to them again in uh, verse 11 of this chapter as brothers. And so it's a surprise, actually it's shocking, when he describes them in verse 4 as you adulterous people. And more literally, he uses the feminine plural of the word. Literally in the Greek, it's adulteresses. You adulteresses. Throughout the Old Testament, God describes his relationship with his people like a marriage. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people were frequently called God's wife or his bride. I mean, for example, Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 and 6. God says through the prophet, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And so the picture we have here is of the Lord as the husband of his people, his people as the wife, the bride of their Lord and master. And when his people forsake him in in sin, especially the sin of idolatry, in other words, giving their, their love and affection to something else other than God or along with God. When the people forsake him in sin, especially the sin of idolatry, or idolatry, it's a picture of spiritual unfaithfulness or spiritual adultery. In Jeremiah 3, God said to his people, Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, 
So have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. In other places like Jeremiah 3, verses 7 to 10, and Hosea 9, 1, God's people who were unfaithful to him are described as playing the whore. Ezekiel spoke of Judah as an adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Very few Israelites set out to worship pagan gods alone. And they intended to worship the Lord and pagan deities to gain the benefits of both, you know, to have all the bases covered. But just as no husband tolerates a wife who takes on a lover to gain the benefits of two men, so the Lord would not tolerate Israel's lovers. And we find the same picture in the New Testament where the church is also called the Bride of Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul describes Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. So when James says, you adulterous people or you adulteresses, he is making a specific accusation. The charge is spiritual adultery. Not spiritual fornication, because the people are joined to Christ as his bride. So this is not fornication, this is spiritual adultery. Now the unsaved person is not a spiritual adulterer, because they're not joined to Christ. Only the Christian can be guilty of spiritual adultery, because only the Christian is joined to Christ as his bride. And so just as Faithless Israel sought to worship both the Lord and the Canaanite gods of fertility and prosperity were called adulteresses and an adulterous wife who played the whore. Christians who attempt to pursue both God and the world are also guilty of spiritual adultery because we're being unfaithful to our Lord. So James is correct in his description of those who, as it were, jump into bed with the world as adulteresses. If you don't find Christ, your heavenly husband, attractive and appealing and satisfying, but instead turn to the world as your lover and seek in its arms rather than his the satisfaction you desire, you have committed spiritual adultery. That's how serious this is. We take our unfaithfulness to God and our commitment to him so lightly, but God doesn't see it that way at all. What we think is trivial, he sees as spiritual adultery. We cannot avoid the impact of the point that James is making here, which is that worldliness... You know, carnality is spiritual adultery. It's loving something or someone else more than your rightful husband, the Lord himself. And again, this is no small or insignificant issue. The Amplified Bible translates the phrase, you are like unfaithful wives having illicit love affairs with the world and breaking your marriage vows to God. That's a horrible picture, isn't it? So the picture James is giving us here, it's serious. It's serious. I mean, think of the inner pain, 
the inner pain, torture, and heartache inside the person who is betrayed by an unfaithful spouse, who must reckon with the truth, I'm faithful to them, but they're not faithful to me. I mean, all the pain and agony of adultery is wrapped up in this imagery. This is what the Spirit of God feels regarding our world-loving, unfaithful hearts. And James lays upon their conscience and ours the enormity of our sin. How does this happen? This happens, James tells us, when we make ourselves friends with the world. Look back at verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James wants his readers and us to understand that a Christian, someone who has trusted in Christ alone for salvation, can actually be at enmity with God and and actually uh, become an enemy of God. I mean, God's adversary. It's horrifying. Friendship with the world describes the problem. It was through friendship with the world that James' readers were committing spiritual adultery. And listen, James is not saying friendship with people in the world is hatred toward God or makes anyone his adversary. It's not what he's saying at all. Rather, friendship with the world. what, What does that even mean? Well, the Greek word translated here, friendship, appears only here in the New Testament. And it appears, or it describes love in the sense of a strong emotional attachment. So they were committing spiritual adultery by their strong emotional attachment to the world. Well, what does the world mean? The word world doesn't refer to the creation, doesn't refer to people. Rather, it refers to the world system with all of its ungodly systems of philosophy, morals, values, and practices. It's immorality, it's dishonesty, it's greed, it's selfishness, it's violence, it's envy, it's arrogance, it's blasphemy, it's cruelty, it's materialism, it's obsession with pleasure, and above all, it's carelessness or calculated rejection of God. It is the present world system whose values, loves, ways, and deeds are dominated by, or as the scripture says, under the sway of of Satan, and completely at odds with what pleases our Lord. The first readers of the epistle of James were betraying Christ and following after the world, uh, and we see evidence of that in 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 this book. They were doing so by embracing the worldly way of treating people. They were showing partiality. They were showing favoritism to the rich in hopes that they might gain something from them. And they were neglecting the poor members of the church. They were lacking in sacrificial love and compassion in meeting the needs of others. They were not keeping a tight rein on their tongues. They praised God in church and then verbally cursed their fellow believers on the street. They were full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. There was quarreling and fighting because their lusts for pleasures and self-gratification were not being filled. These all demonstrate how many in the church love the world more than Jesus. When we live according to the desires produced by earthly wisdom, we have become friends with this world and enemies with God. 
As one man said, the situation is comparable to that of a wife who would cultivate friendship with a man trying to seduce her. Such a wife becomes her husband's enemy. Let me ask you. If someone were to look at your life, and your values, and your pursuit of pleasure, would he say that you are a friend of God, or would he say that you are a friend of the world? Think about your relationships and ask yourself if the problems you might have stem from the ungodly jealousy and selfish ambition and the sinful pursuit of pleasure and self-gratification characteristic of the world. And if so, there's only one solution. And that is repentance and trusting in God's sanctifying power. As one man said, we must renounce the world if we wish to serve God. And of course, Jesus said the same thing when he said we cannot serve two masters. And as Paul said, we're to have our hearts set on things above, not on things below. I mean, these are, these are painful thoughts, painful truths. I mean, that a Christian for whom Christ died when he was still an enemy should, in effect, lower himself to the degree that he's living as a redeemed enemy of God. Yet this is the very focus of our text because James is writing to Christians. But as one commentator rightly noted, and this must be added, it must be said that those who persistently and continually live as friends of the world are very likely without grace, not Christians at all, despite their claims to faith. These are sobering, tough, in-your-face truths, aren't they? Well, thankfully, James doesn't drop the problem on us without a solution. <laughs> Now, like a good physician, he follows the diagnosis with a prescription. He says in verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is the most difficult passage in James to interpret for two reasons. First of all, James states that the Scripture says. And so this would lead us to believe he's quoting an Old Testament text. But there is no such text in the Bible. So what does that mean? Well, it, it simply indicates that James was not citing a particular passage, but really summarizing uh, the theme of God's jealousy as it's expressed in various places throughout the Old Testament. Second, there is disagreement over how this verse ought to be translated. Does the word spirit refer to our human spirit, as the ESV would kind of lead us to believe? Or does it refer to the Holy Spirit? Well, without getting into all the possibilities, I'll let you do that on your own. Let me tell you what I believe it says. I believe it speaks of the Holy Spirit. As the New King James says, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns earnestly. 
And why do I believe that that's the proper interpretation? Because it's the one that best fits the argument of the context. The meaning then is that the Holy Spirit given to us by God at conversion yearns jealousy for our total loyalty, our total devotion to him. The Holy Spirit who sealed our redemption and he rightly claims our undivided love and he will tolerate no rival for our affection. I mean, James is in agreement with many passages in the Old Testament that tell us that God is a jealous God. Because jealousy, in a good sense, is an essential element of true love. The idea is that God loves his people with such a passion that he cannot bear any other love within their hearts. He cannot tolerate any other rival. An illustration might help to explain why this is good news for us. You know, as a husband, I'm jealous for the affections of my wife. And anyone or anything that threatens to steal her love from me will be met with the strongest of opposition, maybe even deadly opposition, depending on the circumstances. And this is a good thing in marriage. It's the way it's supposed to be. And it's a good thing in our relationship with God that he's jealous, that he yearns for our affections. I mean, God is infinitely jealous for his people. He will oppose with divine force anything or anybody who threatens our good. I mean, God is jealous for the affections of your heart as a follower of Christ. And understand, this is not some kind of insecure jealousy that is afraid you're going to find someone or something better because there isn't anyone or anything better. No, this is a secure jealousy that seeks what is best for you by guarding your heart from adulterous pursuits. Our Lord tells us to run to run from things of this world and to cling to him. Why? In order that in him we might find all that we need. And the Holy Spirit inside us yearns for us with an intense jealousy. And and listen, the realization, let me think about this, the realization that God himself, the God Almighty, the creator of all that exists, the great I am, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I mean, the realization that that this God is personally and passionately and lovingly jealous for our affections, that ought to stop any of our affairs with the world and cause us to humbly, lovingly, and adoringly bow ourselves before him. How we are loved. How we are loved. And how we ought to love. For as John said, and we sang it this morning, we love because he first loved us. And in verse 6, James gives the cure, notice. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And James declares that God gives more grace. I mean, that's the answer, loved ones, more grace. 
And understand, this is not saving grace. Every believer already has saving grace. Rather, literally, it is greater grace. It speaks of God's gracious supply to live as we ought in a fallen world. Listen, lost sinners experience God's initial saving grace. They don't get greater grace until they've initially experienced his saving grace when he draws them to himself in salvation. Just another reason this is not speaking to unbelievers. So this is God's more grace, his greater grace, his gracious supply to to live as we ought in this fallen world. Because having become his children, As the song says, we are still prone to wander, aren't we? And we sometimes stray from him. We sometimes give in to the lusts and desires of the flesh and and we become worldly minded and it is greater grace, that more grace that, that woos us back to him when we stray. Isn't that wonderful? And so for those who are in despair at the fact that they have messed up, I mean, and maybe messed up royally, James gives these encouraging words, but he gives more grace. That's so wonderful. There is always for the believer greater grace. And this is without doubt one of the most comforting texts in all of Scripture. And this verse means there will always be enough grace regardless of our situation or need. Always. I mean, the writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And loved ones, we have no need which outstrips his grace. And we never will. Even if we fall into sin, there is a stream of forgiving grace. As Paul said, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And as one man said, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. And for overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. And so when we come to see that we have allowed ourselves to become too friendly with the world, If we will simply humble ourselves in repentance, you know, acknowledging and confessing our sin, our dear Lord will pour out even greater grace upon us, drawing us back into fellowship and communion with him. There's always more grace. The Apostle John spoke of this reality in First John, or in John chapter one, verse sixteen, when he said, "For from His fullness, from Christ's fullness." We have all received. And what is it we've received? Grace upon grace. It is true that he gives us more grace, that there is always greater grace, grace upon grace. It means just grace heaped upon grace. I mean, there's a never diminishing supply for every need we'll ever have. But it is also true, as the rest of verse 6 says, that God opposes the proud. And that word opposes is a military term and it speaks of being in full battle array. In other words, he's dressed in tactical gear, locked and loaded, and he's going to bring it. This is is talking about active 
opposition. This isn't passive. God actively opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Oh, I am so thankful for that. And the point is simply this. No matter how much you and I have failed, all is not lost. It may feel like it sometimes. (laughs) But all is not lost. God's arms are still open. I mean, no matter how much we've wandered from him and insulted him with our lack of devotion and our unfaithfulness, you know, our spiritual adultery, if we will humble ourselves in repentance, he gives more grace. And I want you to know that this morning, loved ones. He gives more grace. And so the question then is, how are you going to respond to this magnificent grace? How will you respond? Well, let's go back to the adulterous relationship in marriage. If after all the devastating pain and hurt you inflicted, your spouse extends undeserved grace and is willing to continue to work on the relationship, when you could see that as a license to continue living an immoral life and eventually end up on the curb, or worse, however, The much, much better response would be to become more passionately devoted to this person who has shown you such great love and grace, which is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So James simply states that friendship with the world is hostility to God, and if we want to make ourselves to be friends of the world, then we we will be enemies of God. It's one way or the other. can't have it both ways. And loved ones living in a prosperous, pleasure-seeking, pleasure-crazed culture, I mean, that, that can work on our hearts over time to make us desire satisfaction and fulfillment from the wrong source. It wears on us. It's a great challenge that we face living in the culture that we do. And so the question is, who do you love? Who do you love? What do you love? Who, what, or where is the source of your satisfaction and fulfillment? What is the main purpose of your life? And the honest answers to those questions will reveal much to you about your own heart. And it'll tell you much about what you need to do. And if the answer to those questions of who do you love, what do you love, who, what, or where is the source of your satisfaction and fulfillment is not the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only hope for you is not to look within. Because the answers are not found inside. They're not found within. The answers are found without. They are found with God in Jesus Christ. And may God grant us all to look to him. That we might become like him. walk with Him, and be used by Him. 
behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Bro.